0: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the history of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully. And this is episode 106, It Came From Beyond the Seas. Last time, we covered the life and times of Philip II of Macedon. He came to power in the middle of a war when his brother died, making Philip regent for an infant monarch. Philip said, while I'm an adult from the royal family, I'll just be king. He made his nephew a prince and set out to conquer everything in sight. He conquered west to the Adriatic Sea, secured his northern borders with east-central Europe, east into the Hellespont, and south until all of Greece was subservient to Macedon. Then he was assassinated by his own bodyguard, who was promptly killed while attempting to flee, leaving the circumstances mysterious to this day. Upon Philip II's death, his 20-year-old son became king, Alexander III of Macedon. This provided an opening for the Persian forces sent on behalf of the great king Darius III to defeat a Macedonian invasion in Anatolia and send them fleeing home while Alexander consolidated his own power and forced his subjects to stay within the burgeoning Macedonian Empire. Now the year is 334 BCE, and we return to Persia, where Darius III has successfully consolidated his own power, as seen in episode 104. He defeated rebels in Egypt and Babylonia, his satraps ousted the Macedonian invader, and stabilized the northeastern frontier against Saka raids. Trade flowed smoothly from the Nile to the Indus once again, and builders were hard at work on expanding the funerary project at Persepolis. All was right with the world. But we are entering a new epoch in Persian history. And honestly, in world history. This is still the History of Persia podcast, and I do want to keep our narrative framed in the Persian perspective as much as possible, until the Achaemenids are well and truly gone. But that will be increasingly hard to do over the course of the next eight episodes. As always, our detailed narrative sources come from the West and they are uniformly concerned with one thing. And in fact, with one single person. Alexandros tas megas vasilaus tu macadonu kai teis asies apases curiu. Alexander the Great, King of Macedon and Lord of all Asia. For most of the next 20 or so episodes, our sources will primarily be a small collection of Roman-era writers supplemented with the occasional contemporary inscription or speech. Despite his famous press corps, more on that later, no true primary sources for Alexander III's life survive. Instead, we rely on... Justin's Epitome of the Philippic Histories of Pompeius Trogus, a summary of a 3rd century BCE work written in the 2nd century CE, Polyanus's Stratagems of War, written in the 2nd century CE, describing 900 major military leaders in Greco-Roman history. 833 survive today, including Alexander and several big Persian figures we've already discussed. Arians Anabasis of Alexander, written in the 2nd century CE and often considered the most thorough and scholastic of these so-called Alexandrian sources. Pausanias's description of Greece, a Roman summary of Greek history written in the 2nd century CE. Quintus Curtius Rufus's Histories of Alexander the Great, a highly dramatized account from the 1st century CE, probably, at least based on style, since we don't know very much about the author. Plutarch's Life of Alexander, written in the 1st century CE as part of his Parallel Lives, which set Alexander parallel to Julius Caesar and Diodorus Siculus's Library of History, written in the 1st century BCE. Some of these authors have been with us for ages and will be with us well into the future. Others, namely Arian and Curtius, wrote massive biographies of Alexander that will pass us by in just a few months and the first two books of Curtius are lost, meaning he's not even particularly relevant today. There is enough out there about Alexander III of Macedon to fill whole libraries and multiple podcasts, and several of those already exist. I don't want to get that bogged down on this show, but this is by far the most detail we have for the smallest period of time at any point in the show. So I do want to embrace it just a bit. Fortunately, by volume, a lot of that writing is analysis of different authors' perspectives. I'm going to keep that to a relative minimum for this section of the show. There's just too much to deal with all of it. I will share things I find particularly compelling or necessary, but I'm not going to go through all of the different ancient sources in detail every single time. Instead, I think it will be more useful to discuss some of the modern interpretations of events when that sort of thing comes up. So, the satraps of western Anatolia had never fully come off their military footing after pushing back Parmenion, in the Macedonian invasion of 335. It had barely been a year anyway, and in that time, the Macedonian army had already marched all the way into Eastern Europe. Again, they were keeping a weary eye on the Hellespont as ships and troops poured into the Macedonian-occupied cities of Southeastern Europe but it can't have been clear if this was intended for further conflict in Thrace and Scythia or a renewed invasion. Alexander was talking a lot about an invasion and making a lot of boastful claims about getting vengeance on Susa for the destruction of Athens back during Xerxes' invasion, but it remained to be seen if this king could muster the support from his supposed vassals to actually enact those plans. It became all too clear in April of 334, when the Macedonian fleet ferried 54,000 infantry and cavalry across the Hellespont, and then deployed into the Aegean with 120 ships, crewed by a further 38,000 Macedonians, Thracians, and Greeks, ...from across the young Western Empire. Generally speaking, we tend to trust the rough numbers given for Alexander's forces... ...because even though the contemporary histories are lost to us... ...they were not to the Alexandrian source authors that we do have. And many of them cite writings from people and officers who participated in this campaign... Alexander is believed to have been the first king in history to take a dedicated team of writers with him into war to record the conflict in real time as a way of rapidly building up his own legend back in Greece. The Anatolian satraps scrambled to respond effectively to this unprecedented threat. They had dealt with Greek invaders before. Their ancestors had even squared off against the pseudo-empires of Athens and Sparta during the 5th century. These satraps and their own fathers had fought and defeated the independent Egyptian kingdom just a decade ago. But in reality, the Persian Empire had never faced a threat like this. The Achaemenids had only rarely faced an invasion of any sort— and certainly nothing on this scale. The last time a Persian army had faced a strong, centralized kingdom with the sort of military experience and imperial resources available to Macedon was probably Cambyses' invasion of Egypt. And even then, Egypt had just gone through a change of kings. More realistically, the last enemy of this caliber Persia had gone to war with was Babylon, when Cyrus the Great conquered it. And the Babylonians barely put up a fight. The last hard-fought comparison was maybe the initial conquest of Lydia, or one of Cyrus's eastern campaigns. And even then, we're talking about conflict on a much smaller scale once you go back before the empire was completely conquered. The satraps quite simply could not have known what to do here. The usual tactics to use against Greek invaders wouldn't work this time. For the last century, ever since the Peloponnesian War, the Persians had successfully manipulated or outright joined their invaders' rivals in Greece to push out the enemy. Now, all of Greece was united under a single king there were no more local rivalries left to exploit. The most ardent anti-Macedonian Greeks made themselves available to the Persians for hire as mercenaries, and the satraps were forced to make do. The Greco-Macedonian invasion force crossed at the far western end of the Hellespont, partly because King Alexander himself wanted to do some sightseeing. Upon arriving in Anatolia, his first major stop was not a battlefield, or, more accurately, not a new one. He went to Ilium, also known as Troy, the supposed site of the mythical Trojan War, where his maternal heroic ancestor Achilles earned his place in Greek mythology. To Alexander's troops, this set the tone for their coming conflict. Philip and Alexander had pushed their invasion plans as long-delayed reprisals against Persia for their invasions of Greece 150 years earlier. I guess just please ignore the near-constant warfare between Greece and Persia featuring multiple Greek invasions of the Eastern Empire in that time. But now, Alexander also framed their expedition as a new Trojan War, with all of Greece marshaled against the cruel and thieving Easterner. Despite all of the imperfections in the Achaemenid system at this time, Alexander's movements had hardly been a secret. He and his father had both openly called for massive invasion, and the western satraps were as prepared as they could reasonably be. A full royal army would probably have been a better response, but Darius III did not summon his troops. As great king, he could claim his subordinate successes as his own if the satraps repelled the invaders, but also distance himself from their failings. This conflict was unprecedented, and Darius's legitimacy still rested on shaky foundations. Putting himself in harm's way was still out of the question as he had no remotely adult heir and his death would certainly mean all-out civil war between the various cadet branches of the royal family on top of the Macedonian invasion. Thus, a Persian army gathered at the city of Zelea near Mount Ida in northwestern Anatolia, not far from Alexander's forces at Troy. From the Greek perspective, this was almost too poetic. A Zalaean army had assisted Troy against the Greeks in the famous epic poem, The Iliad. Arian and Diodorus both describe a war council of the Satraps and their high-ranking generals at Zalaea, which must have happened in some form, but the details are necessarily invented as no Greek source would have had access to the details described after the fact, let alone the detailed dialogue placed into the mouths of the Persian high command. Nevertheless, it is a who's who of the Persian leadership in Anatolia at the time. As this was all happening in his territory, Satrap Arsates of Hellespontine Phrygia took the role of high commander for the whole army. Memnon of Rhodes was paired with an otherwise unknown Persian noble named Omaris to command the Greek mercenaries. Arsemes of Cilicia was there with a cavalry contingent, as was Spithridates of Lydia. He, the otherwise unknown nobles Petanes and Nifates, and Reomithres, who may have been either the same man who helped end the great satraps' revolt, or that man's grandson, were put in charge of the Iranian cavalry sent by Darius to reinforce the defenders. Mithrobuzines, the sitting satrap of Cappadocia, showed up, as did Arbupales, apparently an illegitimate grandson of Artaxerxes II, to command the infantry. A noble named Mithridates led some local cavalry and is identified as a son-in-law of the great king, via an unnamed royal woman who Darius seems to have married after coming to power. He was probably the current ruler of the city of Kyus, now a hereditary position of a cadet branch from the Farnicid family, making him likely the third Mithridates in a row from that family, and just an early example in what will eventually be a very, very long line of rulers that share that name. This is backed up by the fact that Mithridates' father-in-law, named Pharnikis, and brother-in-law, another Ariobarzanes, were also leading local contingents and share their names with other members of the Farnicid family. In this war council... Diodorus and Arian describe how Memnon advocated against facing Alexander directly in favor of a scorched-earth campaign to starve the Macedonian army and simply wait them out. It is unlikely that this suggestion ever happened. First of all, the satraps were already under orders to take Alexander head-on as soon as possible and bring a swift end to the invasion. It is also a recurring trope in Greek literature to portray a Greek commander in Persian service who offers a plan that would have been successful in hindsight, but was unrealistic at the time. Herodotus used that one a lot back in the day, and many modern historians suggest that this anecdote was probably invented by Diodorus, who was later used as a source by Arian. While the size of Alexander's force is generally agreed on by modern historians, estimates on the Persian side are anything but. Arian says that all of the Persian infantry were Greek mercenaries, which is impossible. But it may reflect first-hand accounts of the battle where the Persian infantry were largely equipped as hoplites and peltasts, rather than the traditional Iranian-style light skirmishers. That is entirely plausible, as most of the local infantry would have been drawn from Greek cities in Anatolia and neighboring cultures which all had a similar style of warfare. Diodorus says that there were 110,000 Persian soldiers. Justin says 600,000. These figures are obviously ridiculous, but modern estimates put the full size of the Persian force anywhere between fourteen and 40,000 total. Arians' claim, setting aside the ethnicity of specific units, that there were 10,000 Persian cavalry and 20,000 infantry is taken as at least plausible. From Troy, Alexander and the Macedonian host passed through a few more Greek cities in the area, all of which opened their doors, both out of resentment for the Persians and fear of the 40,000-strong host approaching their gates. As Alex advanced, so did the Persians, ultimately encountering one another between the banks of the Granicus River, today known as the Biga, and a nearby ridge. The Persians stopped on the eastern side to delay Alexander with a forced river crossing, while they had time to take up favorable positions. Regardless of the exact size of the Persian army, Alexander didn't even deploy his whole force in this first engagement, only taking 18,100 troops with him to the river. This does induce me to lean toward the middle to upper range of modern estimates for the Persians, since the ancient sources do all agree that the Macedonians were outnumbered. But even then, it may be like the Battle of Plataea 145 years earlier, where the outnumbering is potentially added by Greek authors for dramatic effect. Even the events of the battle itself differed drastically between authors, Plutarch is most focused on the deeds of Alexander, and Justin only offers an abbreviated summary for anything. But Arian and Diodorus describe the Battle of the Granicus quite differently. Diodorus says they encamped on opposite sides of the river the night before, and the Macedonians crossed a dawn. Arian says they fought a battle as the Macedonians tried to cross the river. Diodorus gives the layout of the two armies as very similar to the Battle of Cunaxa. Arian describes a wall of Persian cavalry guarding the river with infantry behind them as Alexander's forces attempted a crossing. Modern historians sometimes favor Arian based on where the river may have flowed back then. Others sometimes favor Diodorus based on where the river has shifted today we don't have a firm geological timeline to establish when the Granicus shifted away from the ridge featured in Arian's description of the battlefield. Other modern historians try to reconcile the two by rearranging the forces into a more logical formation than the dramatic version told in any of our sources, or by stretching the battle out over two days to let both versions be true at once. Peter Green, a prominent modern biographer of Alexander, both rearranged the formations and stretched out the timeline. However, in 2013, he did partially recant that view, saying his argument was not as convincing as he initially thought. Others still throw out Diodorus altogether because he separates the infantry and cavalry— which runs contrary to standard Macedonian tactics in every other battle. Personally, I think the idea that Alexander crossed unopposed stretches the imagination. The whole point of the Persian army encamping on the northern bank would have been to create an obstacle for the Macedonians. The historians that throw out Diodorus entirely also make a good point that his description of this specific battle just seems to map the basics of other well-known battles onto the Granicus, despite having very little in common with Philip II and Alexander's standard military doctrine. However, that is also partly a consequence of Diodorus' general writing style, which always places events as occurring one after the other, rather than multiple things happening simultaneously. We ran into this while describing the Great Revolt as well. Green also makes a valid, though potentially unnecessary point, that if Alexander attempted a second crossing overnight the Persian cavalry would have reached the battlefield first, thus explaining why they, rather than the infantry, which was better suited to blocking a messy crossing at a ford, would form the Persian front line. However, if we look at other recent Persian battles described in some detail, such as Artaxerxes II versus Cyrus the Younger at Cunaxa, or Datamese versus the Loyalist forces during the Great Revolt, I don't think this explanation is even needed. Persian armies were heavily cavalry-oriented at all times, and impressions to the contrary are often based on the much earlier invasions of Greece, a place where the terrain itself countered Persian cavalry tactics it would not be at all unusual for the Persian cavalry to form the front line, regardless of which scenario we follow. So all of that said, I'm going to broadly go with Arian's narrative, which does seem like the one which is most historically plausible. But I'll implement some of the modern interpretations, specifically accounting for the Persian infantry. In what little description of the broader battle he offers outside of praising Alexander himself, Plutarch generally follows the same narrative as Arian. Arian, possibly misled by his own false assertion that the Persian infantry were all Greek mercenaries, places the infantry up on the ridge behind the Persian cavalry. This would have been incredibly stupid as the infantry couldn't do anything to engage the enemy from up there. Plutarch places portions of the Persian infantry in the front line, which is consistent with other Persian tactics seen around the same time, and then he has the Greek mercenaries retreat to the ridge. I'm going to follow that aspect. Oh, and honestly, I do hate to do this to you, because generally speaking... The specific commanders of various individual units within an army aren't necessary. They just become a deluge of names, but it is actually really important to start getting familiar with the major names of Alexander's officer corps. So they formed up. On the Macedonian side, Alexander divided overall command between the left and right wings of the army. He personally took command of the right and positioned himself with the Macedonian cavalry and assigned Parmenion, leader of the previous Macedonian invasion, to command the subjected Greek and Thracian cavalry units on the left. Parmenion's son, Philotas, served as Alexander's personal sub-commander, taking direct control of the heavy Hatyroi cavalry. The Macedonian infantry made up the center, with six phalanxes of Pezhatyroi equipped in the new Macedonian style, with towering Sarissa pikes, tiny shields slung over their shoulders, and light body armor. Each phalanx had its own commander, but the ones to know are Parmenian's son Perdiccas on the rightmost Macedonian phalanx, Alexander's close friend Craterus on the leftmost phalanx and immediately next to Craterus, another noble named Meliager. On the right end of the Macedonian infantry block, Alexander's wing also featured the Macedonian royal guard, the Hippospists, equipped as traditional hoplites. Finally, on the rightmost edge of the Macedonian army, Alexander also had a contingent of light infantry pauldromoids, as well as archers under the command of a Macedonian noble named Amyntas. The interesting thing about Alexander's officer corps is that it features a pretty even mix of young and ambitious nobles who grew up in the same classes and social circles as the king himself, alongside elder veterans of Philip II's many campaigns. They were all in equally prominent positions of command. This is a hallmark of Alexander's army. It both served to train up the most talented men of his own generation and made use of experienced veterans. The Persian battle line is harder to dissect because all of the different interpretations of which units were there and which were secretly infantry. However, it does appear very similar to the formations employed at Canaxa with cavalry making up the bulk of the center lines. As overall commander, Arsetes took his Paphlagonian cavalry to a position opposite Alexander on the Persian left, with the Cilician cavalry and Memnon's Greek mercenaries making up the leftmost end of the line. Almost at the exact center, Spithridates of Lydia commanded an elite force of horsemen, supposedly all from various minor branches of the Achaemenid royal family. Compared to Canaxa and the references from Plutarch, this is a plausible place to insert some infantry. Memnon was leading cavalry, but we could plausibly interpret this as similar to Kanaxa, with a large hoplite infantry component alongside a small cavalry guard at the actual left flank. Following that model, there may have been some additional Persian infantry ...on their right flank as well, but the bulk of the infantry was still behind the main lines. Alexander made the first move. He sent a squad of his Hatyroi to ride hard for the Persians... ...with the Paldromoi and archers following behind them. The horsemen would throw Memnon's line into disarray and the Podromoi could swarm into their formation and destabilize the Persians immediately by creating a melee on their left side. The initial assault was repelled by the Persians, whose cavalry carried javelins to attack the enemy at range, and occupied slightly higher ground as the riverbank rapidly ascended toward the ridge. As the initial attack retreated, Alexander himself prepared to lead his cavalry for another wave. Most of our sources are unduly focused on Alexander and the clash between the Persian left with the Macedonian right. Diodorus alone describes what was going on with the other side of the battle. A Persian cavalry charge. Roughly two-thirds of the Persian line appear to have gone full force at Parmenion's cavalry on the Macedonian left, forcing Alexander's co-commander to go on the defensive while Alexander personally went right into the fray. This may explain Diodorus' presentation of an entirely separate infantry battle. Plutarch says that after Alexander and Parmenion found themselves embroiled in largely distinct cavalry engagements, the Macedonian infantry pushed across the river and engaged the Persian infantry, which was no longer guarded by the frontline cavalry force. This layout of the battlefield also explains how and why the Greek mercenaries ended up on the ridge. They were now swamped on foot in the midst of thundering hooves, flying javelins, and shattering Macedonian Zeiston lances. They just got out of the way. All of the sources at this point shift focus to Alexander's personal deeds in the cavalry battle against the Persian left. Either he led his men diagonally across the field to hit the Persian center, or just went straight and hit the Persian left. Whichever it was, the third of the Persian army that Alexander and Parmenion weren't fighting folded up around one of Alexander's flanks to attack from the side, and the Hetairoi ended up fighting with all of them anyway. Every source attributes a number of personal encounters and impromptu duels in the midst of the battle to Alexander. On one hand, this is somewhat unrealistic and over-aggrandizing. On the other, every story of Alexander demonstrates that he specifically looked for the noblest opponent on the field to personally target. He was actively seeking that sort of mythical clash of famous heroes in the real world. True or not, the details described by Arian actually highlight some of the differences between Macedonian and Persian cavalry tactics that will go on to play a significant role in the war. We already saw how the Persian cavalry were equipped with javelins intended for rapid harassing attacks on the enemy with a sword as a backup, probably the curved blades known as a copus which were favored by cavalry at the time. The Macedonians carried the same secondary weapons, but the Hetairoi were equipped with those long, sturdy Zeiston lances, intended for charging in and goring their enemies up close. Early in the fighting, Alexander's own lance broke, and he called for a new one. But the noble carrying it was busy fighting some distance away, so a different noble just handed one off. Alexander picked out an impressive-looking Persian in the crowd who happened to be Mithridates, possibly the ruler of Chius, and confirmed to be brother-in-law of Darius III. The Macedonian monarch rode him down and stabbed Mithridates full in the face. Seeing this, satrap Spithridates of Lydia and his brother Rosachis both charged Alexander swords-drawn. In the Persian style of missile-oriented cavalry, once their javelins were spent, they drew relatively short blades to fight through any resulting melee. The problem with this tactic when fighting Macedonian lancers was that a zyston had significantly more reach, and this time Alexander's was still intact. So Alexander rode hard at Rosakis's, Hard enough that before the Persian was within sword's reach, Alexander's lance was already punching straight through the small metal scales of Royseki's armor. That did present a problem for Alexander, though. His weapon was now lodged in an enemy's torso, and he hadn't noticed Spithridates coming up behind him. The satrap of Lydia was all set to end the war right there and... Then another Macedonian, who had also lost his lance, came in from the side and cleaved the satrap's arm off at the shoulder. This was Kletos the Black, so called for the color of his hair. While Alexander and his entourage were engulfed in the melee, Parmenian's side had forced their attackers to turn and retreat allowing the bulk of the Macedonian cavalry to sweep across the field and reinforce Alexander. Now considerably outmanned with several dead commanders, the Persian left flank dissolved, fleeing away from the battlefield. The king of Macedon chose not to pursue, but claimed the battlefield, the spoils of the Persian camp, and victory in the first battle of the war. We call it the Battle of the Granicus, but we just as well could call this the Massacre of the Satraps. Many of the noted Persian governors and dozens of royal relatives in Spithridates' elite cavalry were slain in the fighting, and even more died in the aftermath. Which I will deal with after this short break. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app, and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors. And Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Once the fighting at the Granicus River was done, it was time for both sides to take stock of their remaining forces and count up the dead. But since the Persians had abandoned the field, it was the Macedonian army that was counting the Persian dead as well. Many nobles had lost their lives. Amares was killed in the infantry fighting. Pharnaces, Mithridates, and Rostikes were all local leaders slain in the cavalry battle. Most importantly, the satraps Spithridates of Lydia, Mithrabozenes of Cappadocia, and Arsemes of Cilicia were all killed as well. Mithridates, at least, appears to have had an heir ready to take the reins and negotiate, if he really was the ruler of Chius, but the satraps... Killing them effectively beheaded the government of three major provinces in one fell swoop. Even more nobles were captured or surrendered rather than retreating to fight another day. Notably among them, Abistamenes, a local-level Persian leader from Cappadocia, submitted and was appointed the new Macedonian satrap of his province. Only three major Persian leaders from the War Council made it out, and any plans they might have formed to continue the fight in northern Anatolia fell apart quickly. When, overwhelmed by either shame or fear of worse punishment from Darius III, Arsites committed suicide, further eliminating the satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia as well. That left Memnon of Rhodes and the Greek mercenaries, who quickly realized that Sardis was too vulnerable without its satrap, or most of its army, and they fled to Caria, the only major province in the region not to deploy troops at the Granicus, likely because they were in charge of the naval defense against the Macedonian fleet. Rheomithres, that one who was either very old or the grandson of the participant in the Great Satrap's revolt, also made it out. He may have followed Memnon initially, but he was in command of the Medes and Bactrians sent by the Great King. So Rheomithres was tasked with riding back to Parsa with the unenviable task of telling Darius about the disaster. In the process of finding and identifying noble corpses on the battlefield to assess political damage, the Macedonians tallied a relatively realistic number of Persian casualties. At least, depending on the source. About 5,000 Persian troops probably fell. Macedon only lost 115. It was a devastating blow to the Persian military, administration, and territory. And it was only the beginning. Trophies of war to dedicate at various temples, prisoners of war enslaved by Macedon, and reports of a great victory were sent to Greece as Alexander took most of the army south towards Sardis. Parmenion turned east and went to Dasculaeum with the remainder. In both cases, the city's Persian garrisons evacuated and abandoned the Satrapal capitals to Alexander without a fight. After Sardis, Alexander himself proceeded to march through the Ionian Greek territories where city after city surrendered before him. How could they not? Most of their supposed Persian defenders had just been slaughtered or fled into the countryside. Those that didn't surrender were left to Lysimachus, one of Philip II's old generals. This further split the army, but it allowed Alexander to move on with the bulk of the Macedonian force into new fully fortified territory in southern Anatolia and it also got the older Lysimachus and Parmenion out of the young king's hair. He chafed under their more reserved tactical decisions and cautious military advice. Lysimachus would deal with settling western Anatolia on Alexander's behalf, and after taking Daskalayan, Parmenion would be in charge of driving through the Phrygians and smaller tribal peoples of central Anatolia to rout out any remaining Persian resistance. Alexander got to deal with the more prestigious targets. Far away in one of the royal capitals, Darius III probably received news of the defeat before the Macedonians had even made it out of Lydia. The whole point of the royal road developed all the way back under Darius the Great was Sardis to Susa in 9 days as Herodotus put it. The king of kings would have moved swiftly to respond. This invasion obviously could not be allowed to continue unopposed. But this one battle had shattered the regional armies. Messengers began to race up and down across the royal road system. It was early May 334, and the great king was probably in residence at Babylon, though with the recent conflict there, it's possible that he was at one of the other residencies in Parsa. Either way, it was a good thing that the city of Uruk had been retaken two years earlier, because the order went out for every landowner in Babylonia to furnish their requisite soldiers for the royal army. As rich men negotiated their contracts with tenants to serve in their place and veterans dusted off their old equipment to head down to Uruk, the same message was spreading far and wide. With the western half of Anatolia either fallen or falling, the satraps of Greater Phrygia, Bithynia, and Armenia would already have gone into high alert before the order even came and would likely have started gathering their forces for the coming offensive at Van, though the former two could only contribute so many men with Parmenion bearing down on them. As with Babylon, recently reoccupied Egypt was ordered to muster as well, with Satrap Sabakes leading them north to Acre, where the Egyptian forces would gather with the others of the southern Levant and Syria. Out east, Bessus and Histospes were directed to send soldiers away from the steppe, and even Indian cavalry were summoned across the Hindu Kush to follow the Bactrian contingent on their way west. It would take time for Darius and his subordinates to draw up a plan of action and summon a royal army from across the whole empire to march against this Macedonian incursion. Every passing day was one more that Alexander got to spend advancing. He made it all the way from the Granicus, in the northeastern corner of the peninsula, to Miletus before facing any meaningful resistance. Initially, the commander of the Persian garrison had sent a letter of surrender to Alexander. But between the time that letter was sent and Alexander's arrival... Memnon of Rhodes had made it into the city and taken control of the greatest of the Ionian settlements. Now, Miletus, as always, refused to be conquered. The ever-fortified, easily-defended city that had frustrated Darius the Great in the Ionian Revolt, Athens in its counter-offensive against the Achaemenids, Sparta in its war against Athens, Cyrus the Younger in his competition against Tissaphernes and Mausolus during the Great Revolt would now resist Alexander. It did prove difficult. Arian reports that the Persian fleet numbered 400 ships, though if that's true, it includes support ships and cargo transports. Still, 300 warships was the Persian standard in the Mediterranean roughly double the size of Macedon's own navy. Before parting ways, Parmenion had urged Alexander to lure the Persians into a favorable naval battle, which would allow the Macedonians to cripple Persia's ability to stage a counterattack on Macedon or Greece themselves. Yet, for all his daring on land, Alexander was reluctant to send his men to face the veteran sailors' ...of Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Egypt. They were simply outmatched. Then came Miletus, a city which could hold out indefinitely, so long as the defenders controlled their own harbor, which, by definition, was a small and enclosed area that could also bottleneck the incoming ships and nullify the disparity in numbers. In a twist of irony, Miletus' resistance would prove more disastrous for the Persian Empire as a whole than if they had simply thrown open the gates. As Alexander's contingent of the Macedonian army went south, ships hurried back and forth between captured ports and his European territory with Macedonian officers and plundered gold in tow to finance the recruitment of additional soldiers for reinforcing the campaign. Several thousand further Thracians and mercenaries from the Peloponnese were ferried across the Aegean. The island of Lade, situated right in the middle of the Milesian harbor, was occupied. The Macedonians arrived three days before the Persian fleet reached Miletus. They also had 6,000 fresh troops in tow to garrison the small island and join Alexander for the upcoming siege. Miletus had grown over the years of successive sieges, occupations, and rebuilding efforts such that there was a lightly fortified outer city with its own fortification outside the old city walls. Memnon ordered his troops to abandon this outer position, allowing Alexander to occupy and encamp his army right up against the stronger fortifications of the old city. This did provide the defenders with a more defensible position, but it also allowed Alexander to completely encircle the smaller circuit of the old walls. Still, Miletus was a difficult target, and day after day, Alexander's men assaulted these fortifications with no luck. After several days of this, one of the leading aristocrats of the city, Glaucippos, came out to parley with Alexander. Alexander refused any negotiation. He had them surrounded. And as Artaxerxes III had done at Sidon, Alexander needed an example for the consequences of resistance. Glaucapos was sent back to his people, telling them to be ready for a fight in the morning. Though Alexander probably relied on simpler siege engines like battering rams, towers, ramps, and ladders during the initial attack, his men would have started assembling more complex siege engines during the battle as well. This very well may have been some of the Persian forces' first serious encounters with the new titans of siege warfare. The Catapult. Supposedly an innovation of Philip II's military operations. Though considered very basic artillery by long-term historical standards, the whole concept of torsion-powered siege weapons was still relatively new at the time just about a century old in the Mediterranean world, and an invention of the Sicilian Greeks, meaning that it took some time before they became common in Aegean warfare. A few examples are known from the Corinthian War in Greece, but the Persians were never huge fans of sieges when they could be avoided. Even if they were vaguely aware of Macedon's strange new stone-throwing machines, they probably were not familiar, but stone after stone and debris crashed against the Milesian walls until a hole opened in one of their sides, and the Macedonians poured through the gap. As this was happening, the Persian fleet, which had taken up one of their favorite positions, was waiting near Macaulay, and they were finally forced to move in. It appears they were hoping to lure the Macedonian fleet out into open waters, but now that Miletus was actively falling, they tried to intervene. It was an act of desperation and a mistake, repeating the same errors as their forefathers in the Battle of Salome sailing into a narrow harbor controlled by the Greeks and immediately being thrown into chaos as they lost the ability to maneuver with so many ships crammed into one place. The Macedonian triremes swarmed and crashed through many of their Persian counterparts. Some crews tried to abandon their warships and flee into smaller boats, only to be plunged beneath the sea as the Macedonians simply sailed over them. Those that survived, some desperately clinging to their own wicker shields as life preservers, took shelter on a craggy island outside the harbor with sheer cliffs, which Alexander personally assaulted and captured with the navy after the garrison of Miletus had surrendered. Most of the Persians defending the city were killed, and... Any survivors were taken prisoner while the Macedonians sacked the city. The Persian ships that made it out intact turned south to regroup at Meccale, but Alexander anticipated this. While he set out to mop up the nearby survivors, he sent Philotas and the Hetairoi to ride south and occupy the beachhead at Meccale. There, they wiped out the few Persian crews unlucky enough to make landfall before the Macedonians arrived. The shattered remains of the Persian fleet turned tail and went back to open sea. Memnon and his family somehow managed to slip through the Macedonian lines when it became clear that the battle for Miletus was lost. The Rhodian commander sent a report of the defeat to Darius and asked for more support in his efforts to defend the empire's west coast. Darius complied, instructing all of the coastal governors that Memnon was now in full control of the war effort on that front. So the Rhodian moved south, taking up a command center in Halicarnassus as the most heavily defended city in the area. With the Persian fleet largely broken, Alexander elected to disband his own navy as well, deciding that there was no longer an immediate naval threat and that he would simply nullify the ability for Persia to reconstitute its ships by capturing as many coastal cities as he could as quickly as possible. This allowed him to bring most of the crews into his land army as infantry, and redirect his own ships to just maintaining supply lines, which were going to become increasingly dependent on naval connections as he moved further south. The cities of northern Caria put up more resistance than their Ionian cousins had, but not that much more. Brief skirmishes and sieges were fought outside of Milassa and Mindos, and Milassa fell quickly as the Macedonians hammered down their gates. Without a fleet, however, Mindos was too close to Halicarnassus to fall, since it received a constant flow of reinforcements and supplies from Memnon. Instead of wasting time on the smaller city— Alexander just left Mindo's behind and moved on to Halicarnassus itself. Once the Carian capital fell, the other cities of the region would have no choice but to give up. But that is where we will pick up next time, with Alexander primed and ready to complete the conquest of Anatolia and absorb the long-contested region into a Greek empire in its entirety. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia.